Hello, I'm here today with Professor Michael McDevitt, a professor of journalism and media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and the author of Where Ideas Go to Die, The Fate of Intellect in American Journalism. We're here today to talk about the recent memo that was sent to the University of Colorado's communications staff. According to the Denver Post on August 25th, quote, the University of Colorado has instructed communications staff on the school's campuses to avoid partisan language and submit any statements dealing with sensitive topics, including COVID-19 science, race relations, climate change, and the First Amendment, to the office of President Mark Kennedy prior to publication, end quote. The Post says the directive was made in a July memo, and the list of subjects includes, quote, health insurance, marijuana, COVID-19 science, campus reopening processes, international research funding, corporate research funding, divestment, international student visas, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program, First Amendment and free speech, climate change, academic freedom, race relations, and LGBTQ plus issues, end quote. What was your initial reaction to this directive? Uh, was there anything about it that stood out to you? Oh, well, I come up at this from a journalism instructor perspective, and I'm wondering about the motivation. We're, we're living in an era in which people are dying with COVID infections, part because of their science denial. Universities have a civic obligation to apply science to public discourse. So if anything, in an era of anti-intellectualism and global warming, university presidents should, as individuals and a as a group, if anything, should be speaking out with their hair on fire about these issues. And for the CU president to expect a measured tone in terms of application of university expertise, public affairs, I think is discouraging to say the least. Now, uh, you mentioned a few of the topics back there just a moment ago. When it comes to that list of topics that were to be sent to the president's office before their release, were there any other topics outside of those ones that you mentioned that stood out to you for the reason that for being on that directive or was your focus mostly on the ones you just mentioned? I think I recall that Black Lives Matter, perhaps uh, anti-racism, uh, COVID science, these are hot button issues in which the president wants university communications across all four campuses to speak in measured tones. And of course, universities should not be gratuitously controversial because we have a lot of stakeholders. But at the same time, universities and the academic media nexus should offer new perspectives, new ideas, new ways of thinking at a time of you know, a lot of urgent issues that are happening now, a lot of ways in which science and also the humanities and the social sciences can contribute a lot to complex issues moving forward. And so I think it's, it sends the wrong message about the priorities for university communications in terms of what it should focus on, how it should work with faculty issues, areas of research that should be left aside because they might be they might offend the Republican president of the university or the Republican regents who appear to become more and more sensitive. And you mentioned the academic and media nexus, and you address that in your book, uh, Where Ideas Go to Die, The Fate of Intellect in American Journalism. So with what you discussed in that chapter of your book, do you feel like you're seeing a similarity between what was in your book and what's going on now? 
Yeah, from a historic perspective, strategic communication and risk-aversive communication have been defining features of universities' communications. Strategic communication is most readily apparent at public universities, particularly in states where regents are partisan officials elected directly by the people, i.e. the state of Colorado. By contrast, while Ivy League chancellors and presidents worry about parents and alumni who might respond negatively to bad press, their counterparts at public universities must also contend with taxpayers and newspaper editorial writers who expect that the state-funded colleges will affirm loyalty and reflect the values of citizens. This is a really important point. The faculty, even at public universities, are not speaking on behalf of majority public sentiment in that state. And if politicians and regions expect that faculty should toe the line in terms of mainstream opinion, they fundamentally misunderstand the role of universities in public life. So when it comes to the ethical side of this directive, is there anything that you've seen that is unethical about it? Um, and what about it, what do you say specifically is unethical? I don't think that this directive is overtly unethical. It's not advocating misrepresentation or covering up issues, you know, or trying to stifle bad press. It's not really about ethical considerations as much as it is about strategic risk-aversive communications. So we're really in the realm of politics and the discretion that a university president has in terms of the role of its university system in terms of contributing to public affairs or not contributing. So I would, you know, I don't really think it's an ethical violation as much as it's an unwise policy in terms of how the Four campuses should communicate with a with a larger public. And you mentioned some of that risk-aversive communication in your op-ed on October 2nd in the Denver Post. And that op-ed uh, talked about the risk-aversive communication, especially when it came to CU's party school culture during the pandemic. Uh, you ended it with perhaps a resilient party culture will encourage the university to set aside its arsenal of strategic communication to acknowledge an institutional contradiction that is unfortunately core to its identity. Now, speaking on this risk-aversive communication, what specific changes would you recommend the CU system to make to its communication style? I think that it should be open about acknowledging problems with you know, contradictions in terms of a university's identity. And I see a contradiction between the student market, the undergraduate student market that, and frankly, the business model that uh, at least the University of Colorado Boulder attracts a certain number of teenagers who come here to party. And that may be wise from a financial perspective in terms of the short term and the long term, particularly during the current pandemic era, right, where a lot of universities are worried about their viability in terms of tuition revenue from undergraduates moving forward. So I do understand that, but at the same time, we're not going to be in the, the pandemic forever. And I think that the university has lived with the contradiction between, on the one hand, being attractive as a university that's known among teenagers, prospective students as a party school. So that is a tension with CU Boulder as the flagship research university within the UC system. So this is a substantial frustration to, to faculty in terms of you know trying to reconcile in their own classes 
this contradiction. But the point, my point is that it's almost like the elephant in the room. I haven't really heard a lot of public discussion among my faculty colleagues or administrators about this contradiction. And I've been here since 2001. And so it strikes me that this is the type of discussion that the university should not be averse to acknowledge in a public way. And so I do think that this is explained in part by the university internalizing this strategic risk aversive approach to public communication. Speaking of that and how your faculty has been uh, speaking on this issue, Regent Linda Shoemaker felt that the memo had, quote, a chilling effect over the campuses and that she believes it could pressure CU's campus leaders to censor themselves as to not offend the Republican majority on the Board of Regents. On the other hand, Regent Glenn Gallego said that the memo should not be seen as a policy, but as a suggestion, and that the memo should not be viewed as censorship. What do you make of these statements? And in terms of, say, censorship or kind of avoiding that elephant in the room, uh, how do you view the memo? Do you feel like this is, once again, kind of that same risk-aversive communication? I think so. Let's take this sort of from a nitty-gritty perspective in terms of how communication staff work with faculty. One major element is public relations, right, which is understandable. So I don't expect that a university communications to be to take the model of an entirely independent journalistic type of enterprise, right? So I, I understand that, that the university is going to adopt the public relations approach. But at the same time, we're not talking about you know, accrued public relations, right, in terms of strategic communication. And part of what university communication staff do, many of them are former journalists themselves, or maybe they currently identify themselves as journalists, and I think that that's fair. But what they do is that they work with faculty and identify scholarship in the humanities, the social sciences, the creative arts, the, the, the natural sciences, they identify research that could be of public interest, right? And some of that research of public interest will frankly have political implications, right? For policy or public opinion, or, you know, maybe for the, the high stakes election coming up at the state and national levels. And so you could easily imagine that members of the university staffs are going to shy away from, or maybe not acknowledge consciously, but have just internalized the idea that there's a certain type of scholarship that could be considered to be politically loaded and might offend the Republican regents and the Republican president of the university. So yeah, I do think that, I think Linda Shoemaker is absolutely right. We're not talking about overt censorship, but still, that's not the way that political communication happens. A lot of opinions are not expressed because people sort of anticipate the political climate and some ideas are expressed and some aren't. As we approach the 2020 election, which is just now under a month away, um, what do you believe this might mean for, say, Boulder community headed into the election from your personal view? What, how, what kind of an effect do you think this might have? Well, here's where I, I think I might agree with some of the motivation of the directive, because I do believe it was argued in the context of coming up against the election. I could be wrong about the, the wording or the exact motive behind it. But so here's where I would agree 
with this directive that it's absolutely true that particularly during the final weeks of the semester that faculty or communication staff should not gratuitously make pronouncements uh, with respect to their opinions about voting for one candidate or another. Important for the reputation of and the role of intellectual work in politics, it's important that there is some autonomy. And so I do agree that the way that research findings, to the extent that they apply to public policy and public education, they should not be framed in such a way that they appear overtly partisan, particularly during an election campaign. Now, you mentioned a little while ago that some of the faculty was avoiding talking about, as you put it, kind of the elephant in the room. Now, Ken McConnellog, uh, the CU system spokesperson who authored this document that brought that um, brought up this discussion, said that the memo was not sent to nor intended to impact faculty as per the Denver Post. And it sounds like there is still a bit of an impact on the faculty. Would you say that there's been an impact on the faculty? I would say it has no impact on faculty who are motivated to speak out on public issues. In fact, it might motivate faculty to spend you know, less time on in the laboratory, laboratory and maybe more time applying their scholarship to, to public issues because um, I think it's important that, that faculty not internalize any expectation for, for strategic communication. But on the other hand, I think it can filter into faculty work in a more subtle way in terms of the relationship between faculty and communication staff, as I discussed earlier, in terms of, well, I'll just add here that faculty are so busy and a lot of their incentives are not really to engage with public communication because they're busy trying to get published and prepare for classes and so forth. So to the extent that the communication staff that they work with are not initiating and not proactive in working with faculty, in terms of applying their research to public policy and public opinion. That's where I think that indirectly the directive could affect faculty work in terms of its relevance to the public sphere. Now, I understand that we're uh, running a little towards the end of our time, and that was all the major questions I had about your thoughts on this directive. Now, is there anything else that you would like to say to our listeners and to our, our audience uh, while we're talking, is there anything you'd like to leave for them as a last note or something to walk away thinking about? I would encourage listeners uh, to be receptive to the relevance of scholarship from CU Boulder and the other CU campuses. And I think that journalists as well could can benefit from thinking more about all of the expertise um, on the CU campuses that can be applied to Colorado, the Denver Boulder area and internationally. And I just think that there's a wealth of insight and expertise that is not applied as much as it should be to journalism and to public opinion. I think that maybe this directive, um, once we're past the trauma of the pandemic and past this high stakes election scenario, when things settle down, I think it would be wise for the for local journalists and faculty and reasons to think more about the relevance of scholarship to public policy and to educating the public. Professor McDevitt, thank you for coming to talk with us today. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure.